Welcome to Next Up, a Mid-Century Homes production, where we highlight the people, the places, and the work of folks that are making an impact in the world of mid-century design and architecture. And when we are not conducting interviews for this podcast, we are making mid-century dreams come true in Boise, Idaho. You can find out more about the work we do online at mid-centuryhomes.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Boise Mid-Century Homes. On today's episode, we're airing an exclusive presentation that took place back in February at Modernism Week in Palm Springs. The owner of our company, TJ Pierce, was asked by Atomic Ranch to moderate a panel conversation regarding the past, present, and future of mid-century design and architecture. In this 90-minute presentation, you'll hear from an architect, a preservationist, a remodeler, and a new home builder. It's a really interesting conversation that we hope will inspire you in your own pursuit of knowledge and understanding. Have fun, listen in, and tell us what you think by sending us an email to info at mid-centuryhomes.com. And before we jump in, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to sunny Palm Springs. Finally. <laughs> Finally. Welcome to Atomic Ranch's newest seminar. I'm Jiki Torres, Editorial Director for Atomic Ranch. Today we'll be discussing the preservation impact and long-term importance of mid-century modern architecture. This seminar came about because of our conversations with folks just like you, conversations that our team has had both online, in person, and um, thank you is all we have to say. Thank you for telling us what you see from Atomic Ranch. We consider it a privilege to be able to produce events like this, and we take seriously the opportunity to educate and equip our fellow modernists. Today's panel is made up of trusted friends and experts. The conversation will be moderated by TJ Pierce of Mid-Century Modern Homes by Moniker Real Estate. He's helped to cultivate a passionate collection of modernists in Boise, Idaho, and will be sharing his personal love of the style today. Joining him is Stephen Shields of Shields Residential, Dick Burkett, board member of the Palm Springs Modern Committee and vice chair of the Historic Site Preservation Board, architect William Lavoie, and Troy Cudlack of Cud Properties. <laughs> we will be reserving a few moments at the end of our time today for questions from the audience. That's what those note cards are in your magazines. So please don't forget to jot down a few questions if you have any. And if you're missing a note card, please let us know. We'd love to hand you one. Without further ado, I'll go ahead and hand things over to TJ. Thank you very much. And thank you, Atomic Ranch. <clears throat> for always providing engaging content material for us to have lots of conversations about. Um, well, thank you uh, for joining us this morning. Um, we've got four excellent individuals who are excited to share their thoughts and opinions on um, where we're at in uh, this pursuit of mid-century knowledge and architecture. Um, and where we're going. And so hopefully they can carve out a path for us that will make more sense as we are pursuing um, even our own properties, but the love of mid-century architecture. So um, thanks guys for being here, much appreciated. And uh, I think the first thing that would be most important for us to discuss is how did we get here? That's the biggest question because more than half of this panel 10 years ago would not have called themselves mid-century enthusiasts, right? 
So we've got some good uh, different backgrounds and ways that we've come into this love and appreciation of mid-century architecture. And, um, you know, one of the questions that I think a lot of people ask is, what has caused this? Where did we come from today to attract these crazy individuals who love mid-century architecture like we do uh, to a booth in Palm Springs where we get to talk about this stuff? So, um, Troy, start us off. Uh, where did we come Test. from? Nice. How did we get here? Why are we here today? Well, I'm the baby on the panel, so <laughs> 10 years ago, I was still in diapers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but um, we've, in my opinion, we've come, for me, well, let me go back to um, the beginning. I was attracted to mid-century modern because of my awesome wife. Um, she introduced me to it, and we fell in love with it. And I think overall, culturally um, and socially, there's been this movement of less is more, um, you know, that indoor-outdoor living, those kind of things that fit in socially um, with how we interact with our family, mm -hmm. um, how we interact with our friends. <clears throat> and um, that's what was appealing to me. And I think that rests with lots of people in, um, in their hearts, and that's what's kind of spurred this movement. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Stephen, what are your thoughts? Um, first of all, thanks for having us here, TJ and yep. Tonic Ranch. We love you all, and we're, we're, gla we're glad to be here. Um, I think that uh, it's somewhat funny to look back on, you know, in the 80s when we're watching the Jetsons, and, uh, and we were looking forward to this time, and though we don't have flying cars now uh, still, uh, probably there's that's kind of some kind of conspiracy why we don't have flying cars. We should <laughs> we should put a committee together to figure that out. But uh, but essentially that is kind of where we've arrived now. The idea that we have uh, these insane speakers in every room in our house that we can address by name and uh, will respond to our whim. And uh, we have our electronic devices that control our thermostats instead of a dial. And there's, there's so much about technology that has come in that we are all embracing that makes it so that we are embracing an environment that reflects the kind of technology we're using. It's not to say that a turn of the century uh, mansion in Tennessee doesn't look great with an iPad, but on a sick quartz countertop with you know funky backsplash and really clean lines, the iPad just looks better. And we're, <laughs> all, and we're all using the iPad anyhow, and we have these things, so it's, it seems incumbent for us to be obsessed with something that fits our current lifestyle yeah. and what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dick, what, what are your thoughts regarding um, this this resurgence, does it surprise you that this excitement for this era of architecture is here? No, not, <clears throat> not really. Um, I think it was uh, something that's wanting to happen. Um, I guess uh, in my case, uh, Troy has said he's the baby of the group. Uh, well, I guess I'm the grandfather because I grew up with <laughs> shag, orange shag carpet in one room and yellow in another. Oh, yeah. And uh, all Danish furniture my mother had to have the latest. Yeah. And uh, so 
Um, and it did sort of lie dormant for many, many years until uh, but the Mad Men came along. And I think that there was a, that was a kickstart mm -hmm. uh, of, the, of the whole movement coming back, um, as well as the culture uh, was ready for it, um, I think, as well. Um, I think the millennials had a uh, has had a major part in in simplifying life again, mm -hmm. and um, so it's back to the basics um, in in many respects. And you know, there's the the what I call the classical side of mid-century when you know you have particularly those piece uh, furniture-wise that came out of the Bauhaus, um, and you know with Gropius and you've got Mies and uh, I think that then you have the Danish side, um, uh, actually from a styling standpoint. So I think that um, uh, the culture was ready to take a look at slowing down and simplifying. And uh, I think that, again, goes back to uh, part of the resurgence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and Bill, what are your thoughts? Do you agree that, um, I mean, is this a surprising thing to you that we're here today and, and all the excitement around the mid-century architecture exists? Uh, surprised, yes. Um, but if you, you look at the trends of architectural history, um, we, we tend to like things that we've forgotten the bad parts of. Um, the si I, I can, I, I'm old enough. I do remember the 60s, and they weren't all that pleasant. Um, I, you know, I, I ended up volunteering as opposed to being drafted. That's how I remember the 60s. Um, but I think it's long enough ago that we remember the good things. Yeah. Um, is one part of it. And the other part is what, what Dick was saying. We're in a period in our history, um, in our culture, where we're looking to simplify our lives, to use our resources more efficiently. Um, and, and that was one of the hallmarks of, of the mid-century modern movement was there, there, there were, you know, after years of rationing, things were available, but they weren't readily available. So you had to make do with a minimum amount of stuff. Um, there were new technologies, but, you know, you, you had to use it sparingly. You couldn't use it lavishly. So we're looking back to that period to, again, sort of like, okay, we're at a period now where we do need to use, we have to use our stuff more efficiently. And what better style to emulate than the mid-century, which you did it so well. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, what are your thoughts on um, the rise that this movement has taken? Uh, Dick, what are your thoughts on the idea of this kind of at its peak, or do you feel like we're still on the rise? Oh, I think we're still on the rise. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere real soon. Um, it's been interesting to watch um, the progression uh, yeah. of this, and I, I realize we're sitting in a, um, a very special area here in Palm Springs, but um, I also know that it's happening all over the, all over the country. So I think that um, it's one of those things that, um, and, and you know, having a background in the showroom to the trade uh, business, 
um, we've seen tr uh, trends come and go. Uh, to me, this is one that has been the most powerful of those trends. I mean, I rode through in Florida, particularly um, that period of the 70s and the 80s, where it was like, uh, we called them in Florida, the, uh, the faux Meisner um, Spanish look. And, um, you know, it was, and that, that lasted maybe about 10, 12 years, I would imagine, going through that period. Um, <clears throat> but this one, I think, has legs because, again, I go back to it's part of our culture today. Um, with all the frenzy, I think technology's had a lot to do with make, you know, people realizing we're a little bit too connected. So it's that whole simplification, and I think it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. um, as well. So, um, you know, I'm sure at some point it will wane, um, maybe gradually, but I don't think we're anywhere um, near that point. Yeah. Troy, do you think we're still on the rise? Yeah, I do. Um, the day that I, what happened, is it still on? The day that I went to um, grab a pair of socks and boxers out of my drawer and they were like, so intricately folded and I could see everyone in my little drawer inside of a box. I was like, what's going on? And then my wife said, Komari, I'm doing Komari. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is crazy. This is like, this is the movement. This is what it is. So <clears throat> that's just one little thing I think that touches on the whole gamut of like this yeah this movement that we've seen. I mean, five, six years ago, you didn't see a sweet mid-century modern looking contemporary house in the background of an Allstate commercial. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, and I could name off 20 examples of that. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> I think it will continue. Um, it, will, it will morph and change and, um, you know, take different, different ways. Like Steve and I have talked multiple times about um, here in Palm Springs, eight years ago, um, houses were gray and white, and that's it. That's what everybody did. Well, as we've come, come through and come through this cycle, like there's more creativity, people are bringing in more organic materials, more wood, um, different takes you know, from their creative aspect on, on a similar space, and architecture can live as art and that's what's so cool about architecture and why I think it, it will, it'll be here forever. There's also a supply and demand. You know, there's only, there's only so much of these prized architectural places that were built in the 50s, 60s, late 40s. Um, and as long as they're treated that way and people are aware of what they're, they're doing, it will continue and I think the the mainstream fad of, of mid-century modern will, will continue to, to plug away. Well, it's okay, there's fixed inventory, but you're helping create new, correct? I'm you, trying, You'll, you'll I'm trying. help that supply and demand chain, so thank you for that. And, uh, and Bill, um, the excitement, I think, stems from its residential roots, how we're all impacted. Uh, but do you see that this resurgence and this trend and the excitement around mid-century design and architecture is affecting things outside of residential architecture as well. 
I think it's affecting the culture as a whole. Yeah. Um, with, with most architectural movements, it, it often starts with a, uh, the elite group of people who sort of like latch on to an artistic movement. Um, and then it dissipates down into the general culture. Um, and um, developers have always liked mid-century modern or the international style because they could build uh, absolutely inexpensively um, and, and cheaply. Even um, you know the classic examples of the Seagram building sheathed in, in you know stainless steel was an exquisite building and probably really more expensive than it shouldn't have been. But it set a tone for development where the, the simpler the box, the better. Um, and in mid-century is, is a way of, of building inexpensively but with enough emphasis or just this little element that makes it interesting to the average person. And, and we find the average person does like that little bit of visual interest. It, it's why they like traditional architecture. It has a visual interest. So it's a matter of educating the masses um, to appreciate mid what the design aesthetic of mid-century modern. Um, I think last week is, you know, still thinking about what we're going to say this morning. I saw Walmart ad. They are offering mid-century furniture. <laughs> and so is that to be celebrated or to be feared? And, 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 and you know, it, it, uh, it made me smile because this means that those people out there are paying attention to what our passion is and, and maybe they're appreciating it. Absolutely, yeah. And, and great segue into the next topic of conversation because, you know, it's one thing to identify where we've come from and where we are. But in the process of determining where we are, what are the, the challenges or the things that are exciting about that rise and, and that increase in this era of architecture as well? Because I think plenty of us, um, in fact, it'd be interesting to poll, if you have been a mid-century enthusiast for longer than 15 years, raise your hand. Okay. Longer than 10 years, raise your hand. Okay. And how about less than 10 years, raise your hand. So it's kind of half and half, roughly, in the room currently. And like you said, is that to be celebrated or is that to be feared? Because it is scary. I know myself and my wife have acquired a piece of mid-century architecture that I think a lot of people don't necessarily know two things. In fact, I was having a conversation with the audience before we started. They don't know, one, what it is, or two, what to do with it. And oftentimes we see the fear side being taking your own impression of this, uh, of your ideas of what you want the home to be without fully understanding what mid-century architecture is. And so in the modernization of these homes to meet modern day needs that we have, I think there's a couple key questions that we could take your insight and your opinion from that would help our audience. Uh, the first one is uh, just like Walmart is starting to carry, <laughs> that's, that's very funny, <laughs> uh, carry mid-century furniture, there's also a lot of manufacturers and suppliers that are trying to offer retro style to help accommodate what we're all passionate about. And so you're seeing a lot more of that pop up. Um, are those appropriate strategies to implement 
when renovating our mid-century homes? We'll start with you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Steven, what do you think? <laughs> I, I tend to like very much that Walmart is offering mid-century design. I think that's fantastic. Um, there's this concept that, you know, much of the mid-century movement was focused on getting really high-end design to people that couldn't afford it, right? There was, there was a goal to actually offer affordable housing to people and be able to get these amazing roof lines and amazingly well-thought-out things and get it for a budget number, really. And because the actual, you know, as you just said, Bill, like the, the actual structure of the thing is simple and clean and low cost to build, why not offer it to people for a low cost? And, uh, you know, we're here now where we, you know, can see a home in Racka Club Estates. It's, uh, you know, 1,226 square feet and it's going for $680,000 and that's insane. And so as a result, there's so many people that can't reach out and get that it is awesome that in the homes they can afford that they can go to Walmart and they can have a piece of this, uh, of this movement and still be involved in it and still get an opportunity. There's, uh, Target also has a huge line of things that are very, very cool and uh, it's exciting stuff. And I think that it will speak to the sustainability of the movement that we're able to get it to everyone because there are still so many things about it that are absolutely not affordable to be involved in, especially when it comes to the architecture side. So we right. want to see more. Yeah. We want to see everybody involved. Right. Yeah, and, and Dick, from a, a preservationist side, um, when you're seeing these you know, newly manufactured products, whether it be furniture or a particular tile or you know, a new series of maybe breeze block that's being you know, manufactured, um, it, in an effort that we're going through to bring this back to life and this resurgence that we're in to do this, are those materials appropriate from a preservationist standpoint to be implementing into these types of residential structures? I think a lot has to do with what spirit uh, is the product in. What, you know, does it, what, what does it have a relationship terms, whether it's texture, um, whether, whether it's not trying to mimic, but uh, have a relationship mm -hmm. uh, back to the, uh, to the product. Um, you know, as far as, uh, and I think it depends upon if, if you're talking about a bathroom, a, uh, a kitchen, mm -hmm. those things that are more, let's say, utilitarian. Yeah. Uh, and uh, from what uh, is the lifestyle has changed today. Um, you know, there used to be maids' rooms. Um, you don't see a whole lot of those and except for uh, the very, very upper end anymore. Um, and so the, the kitchen has become, uh, you know, it used to be the, the wife of the home staying home and taking care of the, the children and, and cooking today. Now everybody's working. Um, so that's changed everything, and, and I think what the needs are have, have changed. Yeah. But I think, the, uh, I think again, it depends upon the, the, the home as to 
its legacy or non-legacy And as in well. terms of what elements to use and what elements not to use. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I w always encourage clients to, um, to be very respectful, and I have, sometimes I win the argument, sometimes I do not. It's not really <laughs> an argument, it's the suggestion, a strong suggestion, um, as to, um, you know, even things down to, I, I recall uh, in a home not too long ago um, where they really just wanted to take out the casement windows uh, because they weren't in good condition. And um, so, I, no, 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 you don't want to do that because now you're messing with the architecture. It's one thing of what happens inside that home, I think, but being a preservationist, we are particularly concerned about the integrity of the architecture, the mm -hmm. exterior in particular. Uh, lifestyle changes on the inside, yeah. but the architecture really must be maintained. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I've been fortunate to so far win those battles uh, yeah. when it comes to the architecture, mm -hmm. um, because that's super, super important. Yeah. But I think material-wise on the inside, um, you know, I go back to, uh, had that conversation with uh, Don Wexler um, and uh, at, in his own home. And um, he, um, I had a chance to ask him, so what do you think about the retrofit of your kitchen and your bathrooms? Uh, this is where he brought up his children and he said, if you think that I would have, if I had materials available today that um, that are available uh, back then that are available today, yeah. of course I would have used a lot of these right. materials. So I think it, it really, every, it's not a one size fits all. Right. I think it really depends upon yeah. uh, many factors. Right. Uh, meanwhile in Palm Springs, it's really, really hot. And so casement windows are awesome and we love them very, very much and we respect their use and their single pane awesomeness. Uh, but when we live here in July and it's 142 degrees outside, uh, those need to be dual pane awesome windows, right? And so our fun game with respecting and loving our architecture and embracing it is the idea of maintaining, as you said, Dick, the spirit of the home. How do we, how this, this home has a personality, it has character, it was well thought out by someone who was educated well to think it out. And now how do we make this home work for us and be comfortable in the ways we want to live in the month of July and, and also still maintain the spirit of the home? And, and the answer really is all about education. It's all about enlightening your clients and in, in enlightening the world how to say, what is it about this home that makes it iconic? What is it about it that makes it have this certain spirit? And what materials are available now that, as you said, Dick, would have been used if these very forward-looking architects had the ability to use these technologies? What would they have done? Right. And uh, you know, Troy and I have had the privilege of building uh, some Joseph Eichler from original plans, 1958 plans. We brought them up to current code. We use them, and current code includes dual pane windows and insulation of R30 to R36 on the roof. 
And so it was a really fun exercise of saying, how do we build a brand new home that absolutely will feel when you walk into it like Joseph Eichler built it? And the best way we described it is that Troy has a pair of black rim glasses and he, and, and he puts them on and says, what would Joe do? Right? <laughs> and understand, hey, you know, if he had these technologies available, what would he do? How would he go about it so that he could capture his vision and still be able to maintain the ideas and the concept and the spirit behind why he was doing it? Yeah, and uh, Dick brought up Don. I mean, Don started using steel back in the 50s and 60s because it was a new technology. Like, hey, you can build with steel and it's cheaper than wood. Um, not today, last I checked. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think in, in exactly what Dick was saying, architects in back then, if they had the access to the materials that we have today, um, it, you know, they, they would have gone gangbusters. So I think you know, integrating new materials and new ideas into an existing architectural product is 100% okay in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead. Just one other thing too, and this is in Dick's defense. Uh, we've, we've talked about this a number of times. There's, when you, there's, we just were talking about it earlier with these nice ladies from uh, Oregon, that if you buy a home in the Racket Club Estates, there's, in, in, there's pretty much one model for 2,500 homes, right? It's insane. There's one model and they just turn it 90 degrees and put a different roof on it. <laughs> I know exactly where every single stud is in those homes. It's very, very simple. So if you buy that home and you want it to reflect the way you live and take down the wall between the kitchen and the living room, you can do so, feel empowered to do so, and feel like you can still maintain the home. In contrast, if you are, you are lucky enough to have the resources to purchase the Kaufman home, built by Richard Neutra in 1946, um, then guess what, it's not about you, right? You're, you're a steward of that home, and uh, you should do everything in your power to absolutely preserve it, and it's never gonna be about you. It's just an honor to have the house, right? But I, th but I think the real question is, does a Walmart chair have a place in the Kaufman home? Well, that's a great question. My, my <laughs> question to you would be, does a Burke chair have a place in home instead of, you know, the, uh, the Eames design it came from? You know, even we, you know, my wife and I own a, a Burke tulip table, right? Well, that's not the Saarinen, right? But even then, the Saarinen was three times the cost of the Burke. The Burke was the one sold at Walmart of the time, right? Yeah. So even then, in the era we're looking back to, they had the haves and the wish they could haves. Right. And uh, I'm pretty pumped that we have a wish we could have. And, totally. uh, and so that was the Walmart of the yeah. time. And that would be the question. Would there yeah. have been a Burke chair that we now celebrate in the Kaufman house? If the answer is no, then no, you shouldn't have something from Walmart in the Kaufman house, right? <laughs> um, but, in con but if the answer is yes, then absolutely. Um, and sorry to go on, yeah. but I, there's a great example of yeah. this in a William Cody that Troy and I had the, the privilege to preserve, and it was honored by the Preservation Society and was a really great project, and the homeowner absolutely insisted that we have linoleum in it because that was the great project of the day. 
And Troy and I explained that absolutely not. Uh, not in this home it wasn't. Terrazzo was absolutely the product of these custom homes in Country Club area of Rancho Mirage. You can't put linoleum in here. That wasn't the product of the day for this home. This custom home was legit and was purchased and commissioned by legitimate people that had great amounts of money and commissioned the thing to be custom built. And there's no way they would have had linoleum. It doesn't, doesn't matter how cool and exciting it was. That's not what was in the home. So you got to do it in context. And it ends up, again, about education and about understanding the context and spirit of the home you're restoring or remodeling. Right, right. You have some thoughts? You've tried to grab the mic a few yeah, times. Yeah, I should several times. <laughs> um, <laughs> as a preservationist, one of the first things we do when we look at an historical piece of whatever um, is identify the character-defining features of a particular style. Um, and then we look at integrity, how much of the original has survived from, from when, when it's time period of significance, which isn't always when it was built. It might be when, say, William Holden lived in the house. Um, and so with those two bits of information, you sort of like, so what is important about mid-century? It's an aesthetic approach, for sure. Very easily identifiable um, aesthetic approach. But it's also a way of manipulating space. So when you get into these homes, pr primarily, there's this wonderful sequence of space. Even in the tiniest Alexander, there's, you don't open the front door and you see everything. It's not a shoebox. It's this nuanced experience of space. The roof folds and bends. The space opens up. There is an open floor plan, but it's nuanced. It's, it's not like everything's there when you open the door. Um, and I don't want to mention a certain TV program. But it, it's, it they were very sophisticated, very simple little buildings. And it's amazing how much they achieve with so little. So whatever you do to these, um, and, and unfortunately, we're talking, th there's two, you know, two schools of thought. We are either curating them, or are we talking about an architecture that, that has a renaissance? I mean, yeah, the mid-century style died when postmodernism came in and we were free to do whatever we wanted, um, and we're still suffering from it. Um, so w let's say the mid-century, let's say that postmodernism didn't happen and we were still building with that aesthetic, with that sort of set of spatial relationships, what would we use today that maybe, what, we, what would we have used in the 70s if we were continuing this style? Uh, and so when you, you if you like a mid-century and you bought a mid-century, then, then you need to sort of like live in that aesthetic rather than I want a barn door because I saw it on TV last <laughs> week. Or I want, you know, or I want, I, I can remember when friends of mine put in synthetic marble in, in their mid-century house because it was what was happening today. I think you have to be very careful about the aesthetic when you incorporate, and yes, incorporate new things, new technologies. They would have. That was what the style was about. Um, but be careful with it. Be careful that you're not doing what's trending today is going to be so yesterday, tomorrow.
totally. We tell people that all the time in our Boise market. When people are acquiring these mid-century homes, we tell them wh whether whatever era it comes from. But if you renovate according to the era in which it was built, you'll have a timeless home. Versus if you update according to today's trends, your home will be out, out of date in 15 years from now, which will just require more money again, again, and again, versus a timeless approach to renovate from the era that it was built in. So, um, but this, this brings up some other really interesting questions that I think, like you stated, a TV show or two may have been demonstrating. Um, but we do have modern day needs as a modern day family. Some of these mid-century homes don't accommodate those. And like you stated, uh, one of the, we've had about three conversations leading up to this one, so there's been a lot of things stated that probably won't be stated. But um, one of the statements that I think was really key in our previous conversations was, do you have a home that was named after somebody or a family member like the Kaufman House? Or in our, um, in our community, like the Phillips House? Um, if it's a home that's been named after somebody, it takes a different approach to be the caregiver of that home while you're living in it and caring for it. Versus a tract home or something that was, you know, tract home style, 30 of them were built in the same neighborhood and they turned 90 degrees like you're talking about. We can have a different approach with those homes as opposed to these named brand architect homes. But one of the things that we're seeing very commonly um, in our modern day needs is this idea of um, open concept kitchens. And I know in your world and in your world, that need is being felt more because of the work that you do. Um, you know, renovating these homes for modern day or building new structures that accommodate the modern day family. Um, the architect at the time had a particular design for why that wasn't supposed to be the way it is. But it also was for building around a family that doesn't really carry the same fabric as it does today. So I'm curious, from your perspective, purchasing a tract home that does, has a galley kitchen and somebody wants to turn it into an open concept kitchen, is that an appropriate um, take on renovating that particular home? Are you okay with that? Are you comfortable with that? I am. Um, I, I think, like what Dick said, it, it goes back to the architecture and not, um, not bastardizing the exterior architecture of the home. Um, but on the inside, you've got to have a space that you enjoy to live in um, and functions well for you. So like Steve alluded to, I put on my Joseph Eichler developer glasses and we're, we're redoing these plans from the 60s and you know, how should we deliver these houses new to people and how are they gonna live in them and like them? So if Joe was doing this today, what would he have done? He would have told the architect, hey, remove that wall between the kitchen and the living room. Nobody's gonna buy this house. I'm not gonna be able to sell it. So that's what I did because you have to have that supply and demand and that um, entrepreneurial mindset in my position. I'm building houses for, um, for a living. Um, so, it's, so it's different for me. I'm not living in there um, and renovating it myself. Mm -hmm. But I have done plenty of those and I do think it's okay. Um, I think if somebody doesn't like a galley kitchen and they wanna open up the house, um, I know a couple instances where Steve's done the same exact house and in one they left the galley kitchen and the other they took it out. 
So um, as long as you're not, you know, r ripping out a huge glass span that, um, you know, has, has inside outside ceiling that extends to the outside and you're changing the way that the, the structure appears from the exterior, um, I'm, I'm totally on board with it. Yeah, curious from the um, crowd here, how many live in a home that has an open concept kitchen? Raise your hand. Okay, now keep your hands raised. How many of you, if you had to choose again, would not have an open concept kitchen? Put your hand down if you'd prefer not to have one. You see how many hands came down? That's interesting, isn't it? So I think it brings up a really good point that has been in our previous conversations as well, is do you support the idea of living in the home before you renovate it? Is that, is that a strategy that you would embrace? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's really key. Um, rather than rushing in to, uh, I think you have a whole different uh, perspective when you do that, uh, when you live in the home. Um, speaking of the open floor plan, yeah. um, uh, I have two thoughts about that. One is personal, uh, because I'm a messy cook. I'm just happy to have that wall up there. However, yeah. I would miss my bar, and that becomes a real social, uh, a, a real social uh, important spot in the home, when yeah. you, particularly when you have guests. Right. Uh, however, if you, I think there's the way, if you treat that open space very carefully and minimize that opening by having, using a bar, uh, a bar height rather than counter height uh, seating, um, and you uh, maybe have soffits above that contain the, the lighting uh, as well. So you minimize that opening. You still have the feeling of the opening, and I think you can achieve everything, but it, it seems to like create somewhat of a separation mm -hmm. in, in the home. So I think it's a great compromise yeah. to, to, to be able to, uh, right. to do that. But um, I, you know, I, I personally, uh, but what I personally like, I have to put that aside when I'm talking to a client. Mm -hmm. It's how's the client gonna live and what is it they want. And I go back to my mission is to protect the architecture to my, the best that I possibly uh, possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Using old retro, using retro vintage styled um, products and removing walls for modern day families, but with caution and education. Would you agree that's kind of the flavor of what we're looking for? Yes. Uh, I think it's, uh, Troy, you, you, you provoke a great thought. I think that when we think about William Kreisel, I think we create this uh, somewhat romantic thought that he was doing it for the love of the architecture. And no doubt he loved the architecture. That's not a problem at all. But uh, he and the Alexander Construction Company were teaming up to make money. <laughs> they were building houses to sell. And that is a very simple concept that you've illustrated very well, Troy, is that ultimately, when you have a custom home that William Cody made, in, uh, built in Rancho Mirage, that was designed for those people 
and it was designed for that plot of land, and the mountains, and the windows, and everything was thought out for that spot, and that's brilliant, right? It's a custom home. In contrast, when Chrysler is designing a home for Alexander, he was quoted as saying, the way to a developer's heart is through their pocketbook. <laughs> he knew he was designing something that was able to be built, built cheaply and quickly and would, would make Alexander want to keep hiring him, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, a, it's important to recognize that especially any tract home throughout this valley and probably any valley was a statistical representation of how the people were living at that time. This is how they're living, and that's why it's being designed, because in most cases, the home isn't sold before it's done being built. They are trying to attract a person with a product that looks like they want to live in, and that's a huge concept, right? Mm -hmm. And so now, I think you're absolutely right, Troy, that if that a developer is creating a home now, you're saying, what is the kitchen to them? And certainly in my wife, in my case, uh, it is a social space, the kitchen. We cannot get people out of our kitchen while we work, right? My incredible mother who is here and I adore just hovers right next to whatever's going on in the kitchen and we love her and bump into her, but it's because she wants to be with us while we cook because it's a social space. So of course it's open. Mm -hmm. Absolutely it's open because that's who we are as a culture right now is that we all hang out together while we cook, right? Yeah. Now, if it happens, and we did, as Troy say, we just completed a, a remodel of a beautiful home in Marrakesh a Country Club in Palm Desert. It's an incredible community. They are condos, attached product that are just super legitimate and we love. And uh, that client specifically does not consider the kitchen to be a social space. So she designed it so that they go in, they cook, then they leave their very much dinner party type of family. So they would go there, cook together, take it out of that place and go to the place they're gonna eat together. And that's the concept they went after and it's absolutely right as well. Yeah, so with caution and education and what's important to the way that the family is living. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. It always comes back to the client. Oh, he stole. Yes, <laughs> um, but but do, but 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 do you remember flocked foil wallpaper? How many of you remember flocked foil wallpaper? Do you remember when everybody had to have it? Okay, will the open kitchen pass like flocked foil wallpaper? No. <laughs> unless unless the entire culture of women stop working and start cooking at three o'clock in the afternoon when the husband's still at work and want to have a complete place she can cook and be done by the time he gets home so she can provide his slippers and he can do that. So if that's going to happen, then indeed the open concept kitchen will leave. Yeah, yeah. For sure. So, so yes, that's what Bill is looking for is what we're stating. <laughs> exactly. But I, but I think you're right, culturally, that's hard pressed to assume that we're going to go back to an era where that's embraced. Yeah. 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 Well, we have enjoyed our conversations leading up to this, and you've gotten a, a real piece of um, what has consumed our lives as we've been on this mission and this 
um, really, you know, pursuing our own passions as well and trying to understand this space. I think the final thing that we've got to touch on for everybody is, you know, how can we learn more so that we are better educated when we're making the decisions on what to do with both, I would say, new construction and even pre-existing construction. Um, I think that a handful of you have some suggestions for how we can be better educated in that space. Which one of you would like to address that first? I'll, I'll, I'll start. Okay. Um, one, of, one of the marvels to sell Modernism Week is you get to go into all these marvelous homes. Um, and so when you go in there, try not to go, oh, who picked the art? Who picked the sofa? Look at the space. What makes this different than the house you live in or the house that you walked through before? What makes it different? Um, and, and catalog that stuff. Keep that stuff in your memory and then walk through the next one. We have a great theme uh, for today's conversation that it's about education, right? I think over and over again what we see is that people take what they've learned on uh, in their one experience seeking out for information and then they replicate it and they do that thing instead of continue to grow in their understanding of architecture and things like that. So the main thing for us when we are approached by a client to do some fun uh, restoration slash remodeling slash uh, you know reimagining is we try very very much to assemble a team of people that are going to be able to bring these insights that are current on our interpretation of mid-century modern or current on their understanding of of, of what made mid-century modern something to celebrate. Uh, so it's about staying enlightened and being engaged so that you can embrace it properly rather than just relying on, you know, the laurels you have from the past. Yeah, and give me two examples that you implement in your own life to try to support that pursuit. Where do you go? Where, where do you get that? Well, I mean, Atomic Ranch is honestly uh, a, a quarterly inspiration, cool. right? You, re you read the magazine and you find what people are consistently doing and they're very much passionate about the preservation aspect of it. So it, it, if you're getting too ahead of yourself, uh, then you, know, you, can be, you, know, you can be brought back down to earth by that. And then the other is uh, continuing. I mean, all of you are here and it wasn't free. And so you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat preaching to the choir here. All of you are here seeking more to embrace the thing you're passionate about. And ideally you have some takeaways and some insights that are, are, are provoked as a result of it. So yeah. um, just Great. being involved. Cool, and your thoughts? Um, the first thing I would recommend is um, either don't turn it on or minimize um, some of the TV programs. I will not make any mention of which ones um, because uh, it looks so easy um, and it can be mis misleading. Yeah. Um, yes, I think, um, the, the Atomic Ranch magazine, of course, and uh, I think also continuing to attend uh, events such as this. Uh, you know, we even in Palm Springs have uh, events all throughout the year um, a, as well, in addition to, to, to Modernism Week. And I think it's, it's that constantly learning and observing, and there are so many 
books out there today. Uh, it, I mean, they are just being written constantly, uh, which is a great source of, of information. And I think it is a, uh, you know, it becomes kind of a mission to understand as much as you can, and then um, hire yourself some good consultants, you know, like maybe a good contractor. <laughs> and, and an architect and a designer yeah. um, and a builder. And so I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Or a real estate agent. Oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> no, I'm glad you mentioned that. That is key. Yeah. That is really, really important. Yeah, abs absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and what about the space of preservation groups? Because I think that's key as well, isn't yes, it? Yes, definitely. Um, again, you know, we're kind of maybe uh, an exception here with having five organizations, but um, I think that many, even my little town back in Illinois, a uh, very small town, has an historical society. Uh, you know, I think you can gather a lot of information from your, your yeah. local historical society yeah. um, at, as well. Yeah. And the library uh, is another source. Um, and the archives and newspapers right. are really quite amazing. Yeah. So the, there's, and then the National Preservation of Trust. There are many sources out there that continue to educate yeah. uh, on, on uh, the whole mid-century. Absolutely. Uh, Troy, are you done learning about mid-century architecture? Not even. Okay, so <laughs> where, where do you go to get more education and inspiration? Um, I've got to I've got to plug modernism week number one. It's it's really it's changed my uh, or it's just given me so much more of a passion and desire for architecture and for um, the modernism movement and. I've learned so much myself um, through attending, you know, symposiums or panels or um, there's so many knowledgeable individuals out there that share their information. Alan Hess, oh my gosh, that guy's like a walking dictionary. Um, I've been fortunate enough to get to have lunch with him and I, I'm like, can I record our entire lunch, please? <laughs> um, but those are the kind of things for me, like I'm always seeking out somebody who's better at it than me to gain knowledge from them. Um, books are a big thing. Books, there's a book on every architect now and multiple on some, and it's great, I love it. So every year when Modernism Week comes around, I see what new books are available over here. We pick up a couple. Yeah, I don't read them cover to cover. I don't have the time, but I go through and I, I pick out pieces and see, and, and I try to get inspired by it. My wife and I were so passionate about um, design and architecture that we used to just drive around at night while our daughter was sleeping in the back and that's how she would fall asleep. <laughs> and we would drive through neighborhoods. We'd drive through Vista Las Palmas. We'd drive through Racquet Club. We were on a quest to know about every single neighborhood and architecture style out here in the desert. And so we just, if you're passionate about something and want to um, you know, improve the space you're in or improve your, your house or something you're planning to buy, just get passionate about it and go out and find the information with the internet. There's so much out there. Um, the archives in different yeah. colleges have so much material. It's, um, but like, like uh, Bill said, going and walking in the houses and realizing what the spaces look like and what architecture style looks like, um, is probably the last thing I would say. It's just a great way to um, ingrain in your mind what 
um, what different styles and techniques were by the classic architects. Yeah, and the one other uh, resource I'll mention is documentaries. And I've got a favorite one that I'll plug. Um, it's called The Euler House, Richard Neutra's Desert Retreat. And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's probably it's one of the movie. best documentaries out there. It, very inspiring, has, has inspired me. Um, and I'm sure there's you know, many more out there like it, um, but that's a great way to learn as well. So, um, well, thank you guys, appreciate the time. Um, I know we, uh, we do have some questions here and um, get to those real briefly. How much time do we have? 29 more minutes, perfect, thank you. Yeah, if you have not put your questions in, um, make sure you hand them off to these lovely ladies, thank you. You're screening these, right, TJ? I, I'm hoping that they screened them for me. My brother-in-law informed me he would try to sneak a question in here, so we'll, we'll take a peek, make sure that's not in there. All right, I'm gonna start with the shortest one, which there isn't one. Okay. <laughs> Man. I got all pumped, I thought you meant me. <laughs> I'm talking about the shortest question. Thank you, though. Common uh, mistake. Can you think of any other design aesthetic than mid-century modern that is so accommodating of, oh, shoot, oh, of close for simplicity and evolution of net zero energy fossil fuel tree living. Any um, other design aesthetic other than mid-century that accomplishes that? I, I can. Um, I, I'm from Santa Barbara. Um, and, and, and up there, um, it, it, it is Spanish colonial revival. And to under, really understand that style is to understand that it was a modern movement um, it was a rejection of over-ornamentality. It was a response to the environment. That way of building is suited to Santa Barbara, a very temperate climate. Um, and it is amazing to, to walk into those old houses and realize that they didn't need heat, they didn't need air conditioning, um, they didn't burn down quite as quickly as the modern ones do. Um, they were built of the earth and for the earth. Hmm. Um, yeah. Also, tent camping <laughs> is a great way to save the environment. As a, as a uh, very viable way to raise a family, right? <laughs> Kitchen, living room, all the same spot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, answers other than what we've heard from either of you two? No? Okay. Here's actually, there's a really, sorry I'm going to um, call one question better than another. I apologize. But th this is a struggle that I think is really real that a lot of mid-century enthusiasts are facing that I think we've got to find some good answers for. Do you know of any developers or um, construction developments or companies of mid-century modern homes that are actually affordable for the middle class and tradespeople. 
I personally do not, but I'm hoping one of you do. As a local question, uh, the answer will be no sometime in the future. Okay. Because, I mean, a great example is the Racket Club Estates, as I mentioned, the reason it's 1,226 square feet is that literally was the name of the model. Uh, it was 1,226, it was named after the exact square footage. And, uh, and now it's not affordable to buy one of these quite small homes in Palm Springs. And it's because the entire neighborhood or the, the majority of the homes have been remodeled and they're lovely and now the actual location has become something spectacular, right? But if you're driving down uh, Farrell and you don't make a left as it turns into Racket Club, you go sneak behind it and you have all of the Hugh Captor homes and those homes back there, um, you do have a spectacular home and then the next one has a spare tire in the driveway and then the next one is you know, completely overgrown, then the next one is fantastic, and then the next, right? And so uh, there are pockets of great architecture still that remain, and, but it's just the nature of, of our valley that as soon as you're in a beautiful neighborhood, that neighborhood will then become unaffordable. So uh, the answer I think now is there are specific nuanced places in our valley that have this awesome stuff. The entirety of the Cathedral City Cove has some really great architecture in it and still um, there's cars parked on lawns. So, you know, <laughs> you can get a great deal. And I think that in the long run, it's going to become a beautiful neighborhood as one by one people take it over yeah. and, uh, and then it will stop, to stop being affordable because right, it'll be beautiful. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it happens in our own market too. Our average price point is a $280,000 mid-century home in Boise, Idaho. That's, I think, in our market, pretty affordable for the middle class. We have million dollar properties, we have $200,000 properties, but we kind of hang out in that 280, maybe up to 300,000 for the, for a nice mid-century, a decent mid-century home that, like you stated, might be underappreciated or undervalued currently, but with your improvements or modifications, over time, this home becomes not only a home, but even a neighborhood that at some point might become not middle class anymore or affordable. Um, but uh, I still think that um, there's a desire, a demand for what you're doing with the Eichler style properties to create even new construction, very mid-century concept properties that are affordable for the middle class. Do you think that day is coming? I hope so. I mean, I'd love to say I, that it's a goal of mine. I, I feel like there's a, there's a couple factors. It goes back to cost. In California, there's so much minutia that goes on to building a house that it raises the cost so much. So raise your hand if you could afford a cool mid-century house and it was in the middle of nowhere. So when I say middle of nowhere, I say, 20 minutes to the nearest city, but it's its own spot. And it's around like for like houses, super affordable. Would you live there? <laughs> Two. Yeah. Two. Yeah. I mean, there's not that. That's the issue. Water is an issue. Power is an issue. Sanitary sewer is an issue. Um, all these things just add up so much. And so to build an affordable house, I mean, what is affordable nowadays in California? Is it 
300? Is it 500? Um, it'd be great to build 1,200 square foot little houses that people can live in and they live indoor, outdoor, and, and live like they're 2,000 square feet. Would love to do that. I'd love that Edison would not charge me $80,000 to run a, um, a line 20 feet down the road. Um, you know, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg for any kind of project that a, a developer is working on. So that's why I bring that up. Like, the, the way to make this happen is, like, we were driving through St. George, um, Utah, on the way back from Utah over uh, Christmas time. And there's a project there that really caught my eye because it's in the middle of kind of nowhere, but they've created their own spot and their own identity with it. And it's good for retirement. It's good for you know those who want to get away. But there's not for the working class. There's nowhere to really work around there. Um, you couldn't go. You know maybe you could work at the at the place for the HOA or something. But <laughs> otherwise, you know, um, you're not going to go work down at the the bar down the way because the the nearest spot or city where things are thriving is a half an hour away. Yeah. Um, but maybe that works. You know. So there are definitely things I've thought through, and I I. I'd like to get there, and when the right opportunity comes, I, I think somebody will do it. Yeah. 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 Well, it's going to have to be a big guy. Right? A what? It's, it's going to have to be a big guy, right? If, if uh, Right now, Party Homes in Vegas has a mid-century modern line, but it's in a neighborhood that still is selling, even though it's a production home, it's still selling for nine fifty, right? Um, and so that's not getting there yet, right? But I think just like talking about Walmart and, you know, we want to say, hey, you know, is, is that cool that they're providing these mid-century things? I think that KB Homes and Pulte Homes and the big builders, if they saw the market continue like it is and they saw that demand available, they're the only ones that can build a home and sell it for two fifty. Like, I can't do it, right? No. Um, I mean, it's it, $50,000 in city fees. Right, it's right. insane. Like it's it's absolutely ridiculous. So um, it would have to be someone who had the skills to do the 100 homes that you can make the kind of small margin on and do it that way. So it would have to be demand right. and design and the right land and the right spot and all those different things. And I, I yeah. think it would have to be one of the Walmart builders. Yeah, but but possible. Right. For sure. Yeah, I think also uh, that's why condos. Uh, became popular, um, and um, and I think that's why they are still popular now. They are the one alternative. Um, you just have to make a, a, a conscious decision um, if you can handle uh, sometimes the HOAs. But other than that, um, I would say that uh, there was in in Palm Springs we're blessed with some wonderful um, condo developments. Test to certainly to one of them, uh, but I think they're a great option um, for uh, for folks who, you know, they want to live, in, you know, in in the spirit right. of that whole mid-century yeah. movement. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boise doesn't have enough of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, part of it is um, the the governmental environment in which we live, most of, most of the homes of the mid-century period were built with three pages of drawings. There's now three pages of notes packed with 10-point notes yeah. that, that are required to pull the permit. I don't know, you know, I'm assuming the contractors read all these and implement every line and every comma. 
Um, I know what most of it means. Um, so if, if we're going to build homes at the rate that were built in the post-war era, we have to go about building homes in a very different way. Um, and, 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 and there is a reason why there was one floor plan and it was flipped because they could almost pre-cut the whole thing and pack it on site. Yeah. Um, and and without, without thinking, move from one house to the next. Um, and we, we don't build that way anymore. We, we're almost prohibited from building that way. Mm -hmm. But so to me, the future is probably going to, in order to provide low cost housing, is going to be provide manufactured housing, doing, doing it in a factory, shipping it on site, putting it together. Um, and, and some of like the mini homes, you walk in them and go, the modern ones are, oh, this is kind of cute. I could see myself living in here yeah. for $60,000. Yeah, I buy yeah. two of them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Really appreciate this. Um, obviously, these are conversations that don't end here, right? I mean, these are all things that we're, that we're struggling to find answers to, um, trying to get better at trying to educate the people and the clients and, and the peers that we love spending time with and talking through these things with. Um, obviously, all of your insight is much appreciated. Hopefully, like was stated, there's a few takeaways um, that we can all get better in our pursuit of our passion and our desire to be living in this um, wonderful era of architecture that Tom McCranch helps us celebrate on a quarterly basis and through events like this. So thank you. And thank you, gentlemen, for a wonderful, rousing, thoroughly thought-provoking conversation. Um, and thank you for spending a part of your Modernism Week with Atomic Ranch. We greatly appreciate your time and your questions. We hope you enjoyed this event. Uh, for more, please connect with us online via your favorite social platforms, um, our weekly newsletter, sign up in the back, and of course, please be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much. of us will be around to answer some additional questions if you have any, so happy to do that too. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Till next time on Next Up. Mm -hmm.